Good morning. I'm Scott. I'm an elder here at North Shore Church, and uh, I am excited to be able to bring you the reading and the prayer this morning. I just wanted to piggyback off of what Stephanie said about how big our God is and how many times we put other things ahead of God. So easy in this world where there's so many distractions, even way more now than there ever has been before. So that really convicted me because I oftentimes do that. I oftentimes find myself very tired in the, in the end of the day and um, choosing sleep over spending extra time in the Word. So I was heavily convicted by that. Um, and so thank you for, for that awesome reminder, uh, Steph, that we should always put everything. God, we have a God that is bigger than any of our disappointments, any of our sorrows, any of our problems. And you know we all complain a lot about things that are very insignificant at the end of the day. So. Um, let's all remember um, to, to um, spend that, that extra time in the word praising our God and Father. Our reading today comes from Ephesians 6, starting at verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tysetius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for this meeting place today where we can gather together as brothers and sisters. Lord, humble us as we come before you. Check our hearts, Lord, that, that we would be ready and willing to worship and praise the one true God of the universe. Remove any doubt and any other sinful desires. Keep us from believing the lies from Satan, Lord, and to concentrate on you this morning and on just you. Fill our hearts with truth, praise, and adoration that you deserve. We ask for your guidance and your wisdom as we go through this service. Help us to open our hearts and minds to hear from you this morning, Lord, in all that is said. We seek your strength and courage to overcome all the obstacles in our life. We pray for your protection as we, we go out into this world to do your will, that we would put you first in all that we do. We ask that Satan wouldn't get a foothold in any area of our life today, Lord. We pray at this time for salvation for family members or friends or co-workers or neighbor or anyone that you would put on our heart right now. Lord, let us just pause to think of those people and to pray for salvation for them. Lord God, we pray for their eyes to be open and for their ears to hear. Give them a heart to know you and break into their heart and let them see a glimmer of your power. Lord, we desire everyone that we know to be in heaven with us someday. We pray that, um, that they would find a way to, uh, to just see your life-saving power in your great name. So Lord, use us to break through and open their eyes to you. Speak into their hearts and to see your glory. Give us confidence and boldness as we proclaim your name to everyone that we come into contact with, Lord. Um, God, we just ask for, um, we pray right now for Pastor Duncan, that you'd give him courage and boldness to speak the truth today from your word. Lord, that everything he says is words that we need to hear today and that are come from you first. Keep Satan away from any attacks on, on Pastor Duncan, on his family, on our church. Lord, we just pray that, um, that his preaching would be exactly what you want it to be today, this morning, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you. Father, we pray for our church family. Heal those who are, are going through things, Lord, and just for suffering, the people who are suffering. We pray for the recovery of people. We pray for spiritual battles that all of us are going through at times that you would, um, that your power and your glory would be more, Father. Um, we pray today for um, Maggie's husband, Nick. Um, Lord, he recently had knee surgery and now he's suffering from some internal bleeding. God, at this moment, would you give him um, special healing powers and just take that away, Lord. God, help him, just heal him. 
And uh, we pray for Maggie, too, as she cares for her husband and watches over him, um, that you would uh, give her also some supernatural, um, just give her what she needs, Lord, from you. Um, we pray for Barb Smith uh, from a recent uh, back procedure that she had, that you would take away any of the pain that's, that's affecting her, Lord, um, that you would just heal her, too. We pray for John Hickson for his uh, breathing, especially today. Father, just help him to breathe better and give him also supernatural power. And, and um, Lord, we just ask for prayer for Nellie and Joe. We pray that you would minister to both of them as uh, Joe has suffered some, 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 uh, life, or some health issues as well, that you would be with both of them, Lord. And uh, Father, we pray for... Um, we pray that you would just take away any problems that we're dealing with right now in this moment in all of our church family that you would just that we just pray for a blanket of protection over everyone we pray for revival that all would get to know you through revival lord in our in our town in our church in our community we we ask that you just um, do something special lord we pray for our building teams um, our building team that you continue to give them clarity and humbleness and uh, that you give them one voice we pray for our upcoming um, prayer sermon, uh, seminar, uh, for leadership and coordination of that, uh, and that it would be a special blessing to many. Father, we pray for Country Bible Church as they are still um, just really reeling from the recent loss of Pastor Fred, that God, that you would give them unity and then you give them peace at this time. We pray for Abundant Life Mission. Supply them with all their needs, everything that they need, Lord, that you would, you would help just come quickly to, to give them. Uh, we pray for our women's and men's ministries. Lead them in the direction that, that you see fit. Um, Lord, we ask for, for a special blessing there. And, and for our youth ministry, that you would guide and direct those uh, young men and women. We pray for Justin and Bethany as they, um, as they lead this, Lord, that you would um, give them uh, the ability to, to do just that. Um, Lord, in all things, most importantly, that today that you would be high and lifted up, Lord. We love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we hope to finish our series of messages from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. The reason we've spent almost a year and a half on these six chapters of inspired scripture is because other than Paul's letter to the Romans, this Ephesians is Paul's most theologically rich letter. He covers multiple very important issues in unique detail in Ephesians. Perhaps the most important emphasis that Paul carries to this letter to the Ephesians is we get the most in-depth treatment of the church of Jesus Christ of any book in the Bible. This is frankly what started me thinking about preaching this because most evangelicals in and out of this church have a wretchedly low view of the church and that carries some toxic consequences. At least part, at least part of the cause of America's greatly decreased church attendance since the pandemic is surely part of the cause is part is this understanding of the church that's not biblical. Another sign of having a low unbiblical view of the church is the low percentage of believers who actually understand the importance of formally committing to a local body of believers. If you really understood what the Bible says about the church of Jesus Christ, it would follow naturally that you do that. In Ephesians, Paul makes clear that the church is infinitely more than a religious organization that some people choose to be a part of. According to chapter 1, we're just going to go through chapter by chapter what Paul says about the church by way of concluding. According to chapter 1, you don't become part of the body of Christ by simply exercising your falling, fallen wheel and deciding to follow Jesus, much as the song says, no one is made up or becomes part of the spiritual body of Christ apart from the sheer, utter grace of God. The New Testament repeatedly reveals that God chooses the bride for his son, and Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 1 that his spiritual body is comprised of those who, in the wisdom of God, he has chosen 
in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The makeup of the church is not rooted in the individual decisions or the wills of human beings to receive Christ. The makeup of the church, according to Ephesians and many other places, was predetermined in the mind of God before the world was created. That's what predestined means. That's all it can mean if you take it seriously. God predestined the sons of God to be adopted into his family before Adam and Abraham and Moses. The church is a thoroughly God-ordained, God-created organism. It's not a religious version of the Rotary Club or any other human organization. In chapter 2, we saw that God has chosen both Jew and Gentile to be part of the church. Paul says in 2.15 that from these peoples, God has created in the church a new man. That's so exciting. That is, the church is a new humanity. The church is a new human race that is distinct from the first one that has Adam as its head and founder. People who are only part of Adam's race are destined for destruction because they share Adam's sinful nature. Paul says in chapter 2 that they are children of wrath, sons of disobedience that they're following the prince of the power of the air. But though we still battle our indwelling sin, the church is the new humanity that has Christ as its head. In a Christian, Adam's old sinful nature has been miraculously replaced with a new nature, consistent with their new heart in Christ, which is why if you carry an NIV Bible... It's just plain wrong when it translates flesh as sinful nature. Very confusing. We don't have a sinful nature. We have a new nature in Christ, and we have indwelling sin. In chapter 3, Paul reveals that God has commissioned and enabled his blood-bought church to display his attributes so uniquely and so powerfully that the angelic powers of heaven gaze down upon the church on earth because it uniquely reveals and they want to see in the church the manifold wisdom of God. So I hope we hear this glorious, this cosmic dimension of what it is to be part of the people of God in the church of Christ. In chapter 4, we saw that God has gifted the church with certain individuals charged with equipping the church for works of ministry so that the church, the very body of Christ, would be built up and grow to maturity, increasingly working together in such a way that in our love and commitment for each other, we would reveal to the world what Jesus looks like. Paul says that this happens as the church builds itself up in love as each part does its part in the church. In the remainder of Ephesians, Paul continues to show the differing ways that because God has blessed his church so richly in Christ that we have a responsibility to walk in a manner worthy or to live in a manner that's consistent with the supernatural calling we've received. This kind of increasingly supernatural activity is possible because the church can be filled with the Spirit. The church can be under the influence of the third person of the infinite trinity. This influence must be seen in our homes, how we relate to our wives, how we relate to our husbands, how we relate to our kids, in our workplaces as we relate to our employers and employees. But in chapter 6, we just finished looking at how the Spirit's power is also seen in how we respond when we're assaulted by the adversary, the devil. If we sometimes forget the supernatural nature of the church, the Bible teaches that Satan never forgets that. He realizes that the church is his one true enemy on earth, far more dangerous to him than any other human institution. That's why he so ruthlessly opposes us and wars against us. 
He hates Christ, and he seeks to eradicate the influence of Christ anywhere on earth, and his influence is seen primarily in the church. We saw that the church has been equipped to stand against Satan's supernatural assaults. Other groups of people outside the church, no matter how educated or how many degrees they have or how wise they are or how clever they are, unbeknownst to them are doomed to fall under the deceptive power of the lies of Satan and find themselves under his ruthless domination. Only the church, by God's grace, can stand against him and repel his attacks. And that's just an overview of what Ephesians contributes to our understanding of the Church of Christ. Our text for this morning, as you heard Scott read, are the final four verses, five verses of the letter. And like all of Paul's letters, his closing remarks in Ephesians offer us a chance to see Paul in a unique light. Not fundamentally as an apostle or a theologian or a missionary or a church planter, here we see him more and more as a brother in Christ. Although this side of Paul does occasionally come up in the body of Paul's letters, most often we see this part of Paul in the openings of his letters and in the closings of his correspondences. It's there that we see him being more intimate, more personal with these churches. We very much see this in these final church verses of Ephesians. In order to understand what's going on in this text, it's important for us to remember that for most of human history, certainly when Paul was around, if you wanted to communicate to someone long distance, you were writing a letter. And one challenge to that, especially in Paul's day, is except for those people who were government officials in the Roman Empire, there was no formal government-sanctioned delivery system for the mail. I mean, there was no post office. There was no postal service. If you wanted to send a letter to someone, or in the case of Paul, send a church a letter in a distant city, it was your responsibility to make sure it got there. You had to find someone you could trust who happened to be traveling, in this case, in the direction of Ephesus, or as Paul did with his letters to the churches, he used his friends and ministry companions as couriers. He would send these couriers to the churches with the letters that he'd written, and these couriers were first and foremost charged with the responsibility of delivering those letters, but they also frequently carried personal messages from Paul to individuals in these churches. That's the kind of delivery system implicit in this closing of this letter, beginning in verse 21, Paul says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's evident from this closing that Paul has much to say about himself and what he's doing that is of a personal nature. But he chooses to communicate those more personal things through this courier named Tychicus. Now we're going to talk about him in just a minute, but the first question is, why does Paul reserve a lot of these personal kind of things for Tychicus and not put it in the body of the letter? Well, there are lots of reasons, I'm sure, but the biggest reason is practical. And this is one of the things that does separate Ephesians from some of Paul's other letters. There was about seven years in between the time when Paul first planted the church in Acts 19 in Ephesus and the writing of this letter. This was a long time in between him planting the church and the letter. Some of the other churches, it was just a matter of a year or two. But this has been seven years that means that there were many in the house churches in the region around Ephesus, and they would hear this letter read, but they didn't know anything about Paul. They never met him. And so this lack of familiarity with many of these Ephesian believers, maybe most of them, is probably also the reason why Paul in Ephesians, again, unlike in his other letters, he prays for these believers in the third person. He doesn't personally greet the church in verse 23. He says, he doesn't say, peace be to you, which is what he would say in his other letters. He says, peace be to the brothers. And in that day, that included the sisters as well. 
That's why his more personal greetings to the church around Ephesus would be better commuted on a personal basis through Tychicus, who could speak privately with those who Paul had said, oh, make sure you talk to Phoebe and Tryphena and Tryphosa and those folks there. Another question regarding this closing is why does Paul say in verse 21, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing? Why does he say you also? I mean, that comes out of the blue. Well, the best explanation is that Tychicus is also carrying two other letters that had been written by the apostle Paul. One, and I'll explain how we know this in a minute, because you have to do a little digging in Paul's letters. One is a letter written to Colossae, which is the New Testament letter that we call Colossians. But in addition to Colossians, Tychicus is also carrying the letter that we know as Philemon, or Philemon, depending on what part of the world you're from. We know this because Paul's closing in the letter to the Colossian believers, if you look there in chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, it's a verbatim repetition of verses 21 to 23 here, which is exceedingly unusual for Paul. He just doesn't do that. That includes this fact that Tychicus was carrying their letter as Paul's carrier. Now, we know he's also carrying Paul's letter to Philemon, because in his letter to the Colossians, and Philemon, we know from the letter of Philemon, lived from in Colossae, Paul says that along with Tychicus, he's also sending Onesimus, the Roman slave who'd run away from Philemon, and Paul was sending him back with Tychicus here. So he's got three letters he's sending, and so that makes sense in verse 21, so that you also, that is, in addition to Philemon and the Colossian believers, you may know how I am and what I am doing. Sometimes you have to look into these things a bit more deeply, but that, that also just leapt off this, the page to me. Why would he say that? It's clearly important to Paul that the Ephesians know, he says, how I am and what I am doing. A couple of reasons for this, at least. The first is because we know from an earlier chapter that Paul had been made aware of the fact that some of these Ephesian believers were very concerned about his sufferings in jail. He saw this in chapter 3. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul, he says here, wants to encourage their hearts with an assurance of his health and welfare as he passes his days in this Roman prison, which is the place where he wrote this letter from. But he also wants them to know what I am doing what I am doing in this little jail cell here. I mean, did he have an obstacle course in there? How could possibly it be interesting for them to know what he's doing in jail? What remarkable things could be happening in a jail cell? Well, if you're a believer and you understand what Paul was going through, there are a lot of things that would be of interest to believers. That's because we know from other texts that while in confinement, Paul was physically chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, and those guards rotated in and off six times a day. So he had four guards he was chained to in the course of a day. And these guards were members of Caesar's elite Praetorian Guard. So these were influential people within the Roman military and society. So he literally has a captive audience with these military leaders, and the greatest missionary of the church is not going to lose an opportunity to share Christ with them. So doubtless, he'd led some of these people to Christ, and Tychicus surely has some stories to tell about what he'd been doing in jail. Now, who is this Tychicus? In verse 21, Paul calls him the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. So he's a close friend of Paul's, and he was one of a handful of men mentioned in the New Testament who made up Paul's inner circle, his ministry team, if you will. These men would attend to Paul personally on his church planting missions. They came around and they were his helpers, but he would also occasionally send them out as missionaries on his behalf to churches that were struggling. The best known of these people that were around Paul, of course, is Timothy, because two letters in the New Testament were written to Timothy. Titus was another one. But Tychicus is mentioned four times 
in the New Testament, in addition to this place. We know from the book of Acts that Tychicus joined Paul on his third missionary journey. And scholars think that Tychicus was a native of Ephesus because Acts reveals that he was from the province of Asia and Ephesus was in Asia. But more precisely, we also think that he was from Ephesus because we don't hear about Tychicus until after Paul leaves Ephesus where he ministered in Acts 19. He is named in Acts chapter 20 as one of Paul's traveling companions. So we don't see him until Ephesus. So the scholars have believed that probably Tychicus was from Ephesus. He met Paul there. Maybe he was converted by Paul there, and then he becomes one of his assistants. Later on, we know that Paul sends Tychicus on a mission trip to the island of Crete. That's near Greece. So that he and a guy named Artemis could replace Titus as Paul's apostolic representative in Crete. Finally, in Paul's last letter, which is 2 Timothy, which Paul writes to Timothy while in prison awaiting his execution, he tells Timothy in the 2 Timothy that he had sent Tychicus back to Ephesus to replace Timothy so that Timothy would be free to leave Ephesus and come and minister to Paul in what were doubtless his last days. The point of all of that is to say that we know from multiple places in the New Testament that Tychicus was one of Paul's inner circle. And from everything we know about him in the New Testament, he was a beloved brother and a faithful minister to the Lord until Paul's death. One of the things we're reminded about Paul in this conclusion of Ephesians is his love for those that he ministered alongside of, but also those who he served in his churches that he'd planted. Uh, we see he calls Tychicus his beloved. That's, that's not a wasted word. He means that. We see his burden to encourage the church by letting them know that even though he was in chains in Rome, he's doing well. There's nothing for them to be concerned about. So Paul was a scholar and theologian without peer. He stuttered, studied under the rabbi Gamaliel. Okay, that's Oxford in the first century in Judaism. Jewish rabbis to this day quote Rabbi Gamaliel, and Paul studied under Gamaliel. So he was without peer as a scholar and a theologian, but he is more than that. He loved his brothers and sisters. We should never forget that. Before he gives his benediction to the church in verse 24, he says in verse 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy, and we've all probably done it when we're reading our devotions, to skip over these kind of verses that mention things like peace and love and faith in a closing or an opening, because frankly, it sounds rather liturgical. It sounds rather formal, okay? Like what we might say at the close of a letter by saying, sincerely yours. We don't really mean, no, I'm being very earnest in this letter. We just say sincerely because that's what you do at the end of a letter. And so the temptation would be for us to maybe assume that that's what Paul is doing here at the end of Ephesians. The difference, of course, is this letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means there aren't any formalities and there aren't any wasted words. And all of these words, peace and love and faith, have all figured prominently in this letter. As it relates to peace, let's talk about the peace that's not in this letter, and then we'll talk about the peace that is in this letter, but you gotta have both because there's two sides of the same coin. As it relates to peace on, on the cross, Jesus purchased two kinds of peace for believers. First and foremost is the one that's not so much in Ephesians, but is saturated the New Testament, and that is the relational peace that all believers have with God. Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is good news only because it's premised on the truth that apart from the gospel, God is not at peace with humanity. God is, in fact, at war with humanity. He is at enmity with us. As we heard in Sunday school, you do not want the omnipotent Lord of the universe at war with you. That is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. God is eternally opposed to sinners 
Because in our sin, we are living in rebellion against him. Sadly, this bad news, which is the only reason for the necessity of the Gospels, this bad news that has to be there if the good news is to be good news, this bad news is being lost in the church today. And I don't mean the church at large. I mean the evangelical confessing church. A Barna study that was just completed a few weeks ago shows that only 55% of evangelical Christians believe that people are born sinners and can find salvation only in Jesus Christ. 55% believe that. You've done the math. That means 45% don't. There can be no better explanation for why the church is so weak, especially in evangelism today, when only 55% of evangelical believers believe that God is at war with them and that they need to have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible consistently teaches that people are born sons of disobedience, as Paul says here in Ephesians 2. Our rebellion is in our fallen nature, and God takes that rebellion seriously. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death, and our rebellion against God results in the worst of all possible consequences, death, and this death is in two parts. The death only begins when our physical bodies die, but the New Testament also teaches that there is a second death for those who die while in rebellion against God, and this second death is eternal condemnation from God in hell. So the state of war exists between God and the sinner, and it's eternal unless... By the grace of God, the sinner is awakened to their separation from God and then urgently seeks to find peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That peace comes as sinners trust in Christ, as they realize that they're guilty of cosmic treason against a holy God, deserving his judgment. When by the grace of God, God shines this grievous truth into our dark and futile minds, then and only then sinners are prepared to receive the peace of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Experiencing this peace with God is possible only because God is not only a holy judge who must judge rebellious sin, he is also a loving God who sent his son to make peace with anyone who will trust in him. God sent his sinless son, Jesus, on a cross to receive the just penalty for our sin. This is why he can make peace, because he's paid the penalty when he was on the cross. Jesus received from his Father the full measure of God's wrath that our sin deserves. And by the sheer undeserved grace of God, he paid the penalty in our place as our substitute. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God who we deserve so that anybody who trusts in Christ might know perfect and eternal peace with God. For those who've trusted in Christ, the war with God is over. Eternal peace has been secured. But this peace we receive because of Christ's death on the cross not only brings peace between God and sinners, this peace that Paul talks about here in Ephesians more is this peace that Jesus purchased for us that also breaks down the barriers that separate God's people from one another. Paul revealed in chapter 2 that what separates Jews from Gentiles was the Old Testament law. And Paul says that Jesus miraculously unites Jew and Gentile into one undivided people by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. As much as we might try to make ethnic and racial peace through laws and ordinances and even protests, the only force on earth powerful enough to unite racially divided people, whether it's racial or ethnically or culturally, is the gospel. Because only the gospel addresses the root cause of our various divisions, which of course is our sin. When two people of diverse backgrounds come to Christ, they're supernaturally joined together by virtue of both of them being joined to Christ. If you're both joined to Christ, then you are, by definition, joined together. Some of you have experienced attending a worship service 
with other believers who are in radically different cultures, maybe in Asia or Africa. You can feel your oneness in Christ with those believers. You don't speak the same language. You don't have a lot in common with them. They're just something that passes between your chest cavities that lets you know you're one with them. You have peace with them because of God's work on the cross. Paul says that this bond of peace is preserved by the Holy Spirit in chapter 4. When you see this word peace in the letters of the New Testament, spend some time thinking and basking in the tremendous blessing that we as believers have. First, because we've been given peace with God, that the war is over. This should also motivate us to tell our sinful friends and relatives that God is at war with them, which is their biggest possible problem. But also praise him for the supernatural peace that believers can have with other believers because we've been joined together in Christ. After Paul sends peace to these believers, in verse 23, he also sends them love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Paul. Paul has linked love and faith. He does it all the time in his letters, but he's done it twice here in this letter. He says in 115, he ceaselessly gives thanks for the church because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Later in 317, he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. There, both of those are named. Now, in the Bible, faith always precedes Love, not because faith is more important than love, but because it logically precedes it. When a believer receives Christ, that is done through faith. We believe. That's the conduit through which we are granted access to God, faith. And when that happens, God changes the believer's heart. And one of the changes he makes is he gives it the capacity to love. John says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So love is native to God. It's so native to God that John says God is love. When a believer is united with God through Christ, we receive a new nature like his. And because his nature is love, we receive his new loving nature. John is saying that because that's true about us, if a professed believer doesn't love God and other believers, however imperfectly, that's a sign they cannot be a genuine Christian. A believer, by definition, is someone in union with God through Christ. If I'm in union with God and therefore share his loving nature, I cannot help to some degree to love God and others, and that love grows as I grow in maturity. It's my new nature to love. If we don't love, that runs contrary to who God is creating us to be in Christ. In verse 24, Paul explicitly reveals this when he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. In writing this, Paul is sending the grace of God out to all believers, genuine Believers, Because he hasn't been to the church at Ephesus in several years, and there were doubtless people he didn't know, maybe more people than not that he didn't know, he doesn't simply send a blanket greeting of grace to these people. For all he knows, there are some people who do not love Jesus Christ and therefore are not genuine believers in Ephesus, and he shouldn't be sending them grace. That's why he qualifies his desire for grace as only those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I send grace to those people in Ephesus. The implication is that if you love Jesus, you're a genuine believer and an appropriate recipient for grace. I don't hear believers described as much as I did a few decades ago by phrases like, you know, she really loves the Lord. And I think that's too bad because there's no more powerful way to describe a believer. A Christian is, by definition, someone who loves Jesus. Many Christians mainly identify themselves as people who believe in Christ, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Christians are people who believe in Christ. One difference between a person who claims to believe in Jesus and a person who claims to love Jesus is 
It's easier to be deceived about whether you believe in Jesus than it is to be about whether or not you love Jesus. You can be deceived about both, but it's easier to be deceived about whether you believe. Many people who haven't darkened the door of a church in decades will say without hesitation, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior, or I prayed to receive Christ when I was six, or I believe Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. Those are believe statements. Again, all those perfectly legitimate may indicate the presence of a genuine believer. But there are rafts of people who would have no discomfort at all in saying, I believe in Jesus, but who would not feel comfortable saying, I love Jesus. I have a love relationship with Jesus. I love being with him. I love thinking about him. I'm, I'm in love with the Lord. For some, those kind of expressions of affection just feel bizarre. I knew a diehard liberal Protestant who in a heartbeat would affirm her alleged belief in Christ. Not a problem at all. But that woman would express disdain for evangelical worship choruses because she would say, oh, you go to church and you sing your Jesus love songs. Loving Jesus was not something she was nearly as comfortable expressing but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. He pronounces a curse. This is issuing a one-way ticket to hell to anyone who has no love for Jesus. This is only consistent with the great commandment. Matthew 22, Jesus reveals what's at the heart of all Old Testament law, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the essence of how we relate to God is love. So we ought to be able to express that about our love for Jesus. It is a sad and sobering irony connected with this book of Ephesians. That on the one hand, Paul closes his letter to the Ephesians with this blessing on all who love Jesus incorruptibly. And that means that'll never diminish, it will never end. But on the other hand, when Jesus speaks to this same church at Ephesus a few decades later, he gives them a grave warning of coming judgment. And why? Because their love for Jesus is insipid and weak. In Revelation chapter 2, after highlighting the many strengths that this Ephesian church has, Jesus lowers the boom on them with this warning in verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This was a fallen church. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Jesus threatens to remove this church. That's what he says when he's talking about removing the lampstand. If they don't repent of their lovelessness, and though this church had done many things right, they had serious heart disease. And sadly, we know that Jesus, in fact, did remove this church. For most of church history, this area of Turkey has had zero Christian witness. He took the Ephesian lampstand. For most of church history, this is Muslim territory. There is no Christian witness there. So as we leave this book of Ephesians first, do you have peace with God through faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation to end the war that you as a rebel sinner are fighting against the omnipotent Lord of the universe? Are you one of those people who feels a bit awkward uncomfortable telling others about your love for Christ or telling Jesus how much you love him. We're called to be lovers of Christ. And eventually he brings his judgment on this same church at Ephesus because they don't love him rightly. If you feel yourself not being sure of your relationship with Christ, please don't leave here today without addressing that. Spend some time getting things straight. You want to pray with somebody? People will be up here. We'd love to do that. May God give us the grace to know and experience peace with him and with each other through the gospel and to love him with all our hearts and souls and mind and strength for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this book of Ephesians. God, it tells us so many things, but I'm struck always by what it says about your church. 
And God, it's just so good to see this high bar for your people. And God, I suppose it could be discouraging at one level, but God, it's so encouraging because you've given us the Holy Spirit so that we might be a chosen race, a holy nation, a people divided for yourself and to yourself. Father, we're grateful for the Church of Jesus Christ. Help us to honor her and esteem her. Help us to treat one another in ways that are worthy of a saint of God, a member of the church, the bride of Christ, the chosen one. God, help us to be that way. Father, if there's anyone here who does not have peace with God, Father, your spirit has to tell us. We can't just discern that. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would just be at work powerfully revealing the fact that I thought I was okay, but God is at war with me because of my sin. And Father, if there's anyone here who may be feeling strange about loving God or loving Jesus or singing or talking to others about that love, Father, I just pray you'd help them to have flashing red light going on in their soul because there's something wrong with that. We're disobeying the great commandment. And Father, I just pray that for whatever else you're working in on our hearts, that you would continue to do that making us more like Jesus and more in love with each other. For we ask it all in his name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with us as we close. Lost our
Savior, you are my King, Redeemer, my healer, Lord Almighty, Defender, my Savior, you are my King, Jesus, worthy is the Lamb that was said, 